0: Welcome back. Today, my guest is finally, finally, my friend. After a very, very, very long uh, time where we attempted to get together, I'd probably say because of his mistake, but I'm not sure if he will accept that, we ended up meeting a year and a half after my dear friend and co-author, Alice Law, introduced me to uh, Spencer Lodge. And Spencer is... I think a part of every story in a very, very interesting way. He comes from humble beginnings. As he says on his own profile, he becomes something out of nothing. And in that journey, he becomes a very successful serial entrepreneur here in the Middle East. He establishes companies that don't only make money, but also make a difference, hires incredible people, who are motivated by success in all of its constituents, if you want, including making a difference to their clients. And then he just decides to uh, create a, a podcast, which becomes the most successful podcast in the Middle East, hosting incredible guests from my favorite human of all time, uh, Stephen Bartlett, all the way to another favorite of mine and a uh, a wonderful encounter with Tony Robbins and so on and so forth. And he starts to communicate a message, even though he does not need a podcast in any way, to make a difference to the Middle East region by bringing different thoughts, different approaches to living. And then in the middle of all of this, he just pops up, backs up, and goes to create uh, um, documentaries about issues that matter or to do uh, philanthropic work that makes a difference. If you sit with my dear friend now, Spencer Lodge, you would get the vibe of a very serious businessman. Everything's organized, targeted. He does it really well. He looks at numbers and reviews and all of that. But then a minute into it, you get that vibe of someone who is entirely about making our world a tiny bit better. Why that dichotomy uh, where uh, uh, all of that drive and energy has come from, is the topic of our conversation today uh, with my dear friend, Spencer Lodge. Thank you for making it at last.
1: It's been... Uh, <laughs> okay, so, so let's let's tell the story. It's been, um, what, February 2021. Uh,
0: you, you know, Alice was visiting Dubai. You, you know, she went and met you. She said, you guys have to meet and you know you guys have to be on each other's podcasts and yes we both agreed and then we only met in february
1: 2023 right correct i followed up with your team several times <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying this in public. But uh, what happened there? The truth
2: of the matter is I was given a phone number, which I thought was yours. I WhatsApped it. I was um, offended that I didn't even get a no thank you. (laughs) I don't don't like you. I didn't get any response at all. And then funnily enough, and I'm not sure if you know this, but another good friend of mine then met you. Uh And they were chatting to you and they they called me after. And I said, how was your day? They said, yeah, I was with this fascinating guy called Mo Gaudat. And I'm like... What like Mo that ne- Moe that never responds Gal <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said that's interesting. So it makes time for you, but not for me. Okay, who is this enigma? <laughs> so I apologize. I, you did actually have the
0: right number, but that right number, like literally around that time, it was my UK number, and you know I moved to Dubai around the end of uh, twenty twenty, and so basically I let that number expire. So there is a very anonymous guy out there or lady that have
1: been getting lots of messages, from. <laughs> w- wondering what this podcast is <laughs> <all> about.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sp- it's, um, you know, we, we're, we're becoming closer. We're uh,
0: hopefully going to be working together soon, uh, you know, and, and you tell me a lot about uh, your journey. And, and I have to say it's quite fascinating how you ended up where you are. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit, how does someone from the UK who comes from middle class or not much, let's say, end up being one of the most successful and impactful? you're one of the most influential 100 people in, is it in the Middle East or is yeah. it in Dubai? Yeah. yeah. So how does that happen? I think,
2: you know, whenever anybody has their own story to tell, it's, it's quite difficult because you don't look at your own story as anything other than your normal, do you? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like I woke all, up every yeah, day and did what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ended my shirt, you know, got on a plane. And so you, you don't you don't think of it as being anything unusual. But I suppose when I go back and I I look at, my family history and, and see where they came from my mum, what her family's looked like. My dad, I, I see great examples of hard work and, and passion and commitment across the whole family for very different reasons. So not just from a commercial or, or business point of view. So on my, uh, my dad's side of the family, my grandparents were missionaries uh, in Nigeria in 1935. And, my dad was born in Nigeria because he's the son of a missionary and his sisters were born there too. And so all was very. everything revolved around the church, um, what they were doing to try and make a difference to that environment at that time. And so then I look at my dad's sisters and all of the family are missionaries now. Mm-hmm. So the whole family are missionaries. N- none of them, apart from my dad, myself, um, and my sister, were not. And so there's a real commitment to their faith, and a real commitment to trying to do good in the world. And I didn't, it didn't mean anything to me when I was young. It was just, it was what it was, you know, then on my mum's side of the family, my grandfather was in the second world war. So he was in Dunkirk and he was known as the barefoot bricklayer yeah. because he literally came from absolutely nothing. And he used to lay bricks barefoot. He was a builder and he helped to rebuild the country after the war um and he was in the channel islands in guernsey building there and they saved up enough money to open a green grocer's in north london and my grandmother ran the green grocer's and my grandfather laid bricks they had five kids and, and 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 again they didn't really have much but there was a real steely determination to to be something or be somebody or achieve something which we which we see my grandfather did now again didn't mean much as a kid, you know. On my my parents' side, my grandfather had a a fairly nice house and we'd spend a lot of time in the garden. Um, On my dad's side, my grandmother had a, uh, my grandfather, they were preachers and so they had a house given to them by the church and so that wasn't very fancy. But what was interesting is, when you think back, my Mm. mum and dad got divorced when I was seven years old. And my dad then went back to to Nigeria to work in the oil industry. My mum had to start Again, with nothing, and so when my dad, went, my mum and dad got divorced, my dad went bankrupt. So there was no money. So I was with my mum at first, and I could see my mum working three jobs, working really hard. I used to walk home from school. So we used to finish school at th- I think at three forty-five, and I would walk. At seven years old, I would walk along this main road until my mum drove past forty-five minutes later on her way home from work. And I'd jump in the car with her and go home. And I would try and see how far I could get each time. And this is back in the 70s. My, my dad went to work in, in the oil industry in Nigeria because he needed a job. And I went to spend time with my dad in Nigeria as well. And I just saw these two people with an incredible work ethic. And that work ethic to me meant something. Now nobody in the family ever went to university. Nobody got degrees or, or you know, high education. And so... You know, you you used to hear the story about if you don't go to university, you won't amount to much, you won't get a great job and stuff like that. But then I then go to school aware of this and nothing goes in. Mm -hmm. So everything I'm learning, I'm interested in the subjects, whether it be chemistry or or history or geography. I'm, I'm really into the subjects, but nothing stayed in my mind. So the moment an exam came... I was looking at this list of questions, you know, with my, with my pen and my pencil and my, and my, my, my eraser we used to have there. And I'd look at, it and I'd be like, hold on a minute. I've just been revising for the last three weeks. How comes none of what I've revised is in these questions? <laughs> why, why are they asking a different <laughs> curriculum? <laughs> yeah, and it felt like that. So I then left school again with only one qualification. I got one O level. That O level was in English. Um, and, and, and literally I was told, you know, not, not much is going to happen to you because you Can't be a stockbroker. You can't be an engineer. You can't be a lawyer. You can't be this or that. You're just you're just going to you know, find your how way. How old were you when you left school? Sixteen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I then I got a job in sales, and that's how my my world. There you began. go. That's what we all did. Yeah. 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 If um, you don't if you don't know much, you become a salesman. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. But what I was taught in sales is is one of the most important skills that I've used in my life. Absolutely. And it was rejection.
0: Oh, interesting. So rejection was something. I thought it would be conviction, like convic- convincing yeah. people. No. Rejection,
2: dealing with rejection. It's really interesting when I think about it, because I don't talk about it often. But when I started working, I was selling office equipment. Mm. So I, my, my office was in a kind of like converted, knackered old warehouse. Um, in Southeast London. Um, all of the salespeople had a patch. And so my patch was EC3. So one of the postcodes in the city. Mm-hmm. And every morning we had to go and knock on doors and not houses, but offices. Mm-hmm. And we had to go into the office, ask for a compliment slip. Remember those? You used to get compliment slips in companies, a compliment slip with and ask for the office manager's name and what equipment they had. So Canon copiers or Xerox copiers, whatever they may be. And then I'd collect these slips. And then at lunchtime, I'd go back to the office and I would learn them out and i'd cold call them Mm. but on the first day my boss said to me right you're going to make these 100 calls i want you to get me 100 people to say no to you
0: interesting
2: now bear in mind i've had some training you know and i've got my kind of call my call sheet i've got my objections sheet as well so if x objection happens this is how you answer it get me 100 people to say no i bet you can't
0: That's a very interesting
2: request. Yeah. So I got on the phone and people were saying no. And that's the nicest thing they were saying. You know, lots of bad words. And occasionally if somebody was kind of interested, I put them off. No, maybe not the right time for you. Anyway, got to the end of the day, got my hundred no's, went to see the boss. He gave me a high five. He said, brilliant job. I'll see you tomorrow. Wow. And so bear in mind, I'm, I'm 17 or 18 years old at the time. The next day, go and get me another hundred no's. So again, hundred no's. The third day, He's like, right, you got 200 no's. That's awesome. Today, <laughs> yeah, I know, weird, isn't it? Yeah. But he says, today I want you to get me 99 no's. So know, go and find yes. 99 and just one yes. Okay. Do you think you can do that? I'm like, yeah. Now that went on. It went from 99 one, it went to 98 two to 97 three. So 97 no's, three yeses. And what happened is he was teaching me to understand that there was no way I was going to get acceptance or a yes without getting no's first. So I had to earn the yes. And the only way you could get the yes was by getting no's first. I think you should write a dating book. <laughs> well, that happened. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't hundred, but it, the numbers were probably as high as that, or oh, very high. <laughs> in the pub on a Friday night—is she? Isn't she? Yeah. yeah. But 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 what it was teaching me to do was to understand that rejection was part of the success game. Where and when you look at a lot of people that struggle in business, rejection is a real killer for them. You know, getting nos from people really kind of it hurts them emotionally. Yes, it hurts yeah, their yeah. heart. It's like, oh it you know, your I, ca- I, I called Mo up and Mo didn't buy that apartment from me. Ah, oh, you mm. know, he said no to me. He said no to me. <laughs> he doesn't like me. And that feeling people have then makes them fearful of prospecting for their business. And so that was a really valuable lesson. And then, and this goes on actually to the pub story. I was in London in EC3 down by Tower Bridge. We had a road called the Minories, uh, and at the bottom of the Minories was a wine bar. And I would go to the wine bar on a Friday night with my mates, and we'd go and have a few beers. And I walked in that bar that night. It was under under the the, the arches, and uh, she was there, and she was just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. She had a, a dark brown bob with big brown eyes. And it's beautiful. And I looked at her and I said to my mates, look at her. They're like, go and talk to her. Oh, I'm not talking to her. Rejection. Don't (laughs) talk to her. It's guaranteed rejection, you know. My, I I was maybe a six out of ten. She was definitely a ten out of ten. So I was going to get a no.
0: I'm actually told that the tens out of tens actually struggle because nobody approaches
2: them. Well, I tell you what, Mm -hmm. this is exactly what happened. I had a couple of drinks. (laughs) <laughs> i can i can't. No, like ready to be rejected <laughs>
1: i can deal with that no
2: <laughs> it's happening tonight anyway <laughs> and uh a few drinks later, a couple of hours went by and then I, I she looked at me again and i thought i'm going over so i walked over i said hi to her and introduced myself and she said why did you take so long oh wow and i was like what would you mean she said you've been staring at me for two hours <laughs> Um, and so we, you know, I learned about you know, a job, a family and whatnot. She worked at an architect firm in, in, in the city. I just got to know her a bit. And then after a while she said, so what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a salesman. And she went, oh. Ah, uh, oh, that's heartbreaking. She says, why? And I'm like, well, what were you expecting? She said, I don't know. A doctor, an engineer, a, a, a lawyer, an investment banker, a stockbroker, somebody. You rush your heart, yeah, yes. Yeah, in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, your company is architects. Do you have clients? She said, of course. I said, and those clients, how, how do the company get the clients? And they're like, well, we have this, you know, the, this team of people and they're responsible for bringing the business to the company. I was like, OK. And if those people didn't bring clients to the company, would the company make any money? And she said, no. And I said, would you get paid your salary? She said, well, probably not. And I'm like those people. Are, I'm those, people. <laughs> those people are the salespeople. Yeah, they're the backbone of your business because no salespeople means no revenue. No revenue means no job for you. So maybe just maybe you should show a bit more respect to salespeople. Add on top of the fact that they probably have psychological highs and lows every day that you couldn't possibly imagine because of the rejection they face. They've still got to put a roof over their heads. They've still got to feed their family. They've still got to put their kids in school and pay for their car payments. They go through all of that without a fixed salary. Maybe we should show them a bit more respect. And it was in that conversation that everything changed for me about being a salesman. I, it was almost, I'd sold myself in that conversation about how important it was to be good at sales and to understand that that was critical to any business. That's amazing. Did did you ever kiss? We dated for two years. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good salesman. Then we broke up. And the funniest thing happened about 10 years later, my mum sent me page seven, 10, whatever it was of the Sun newspaper in the UK by fax. Mm. She won the lottery. No way. The, she won the British lottery. Yeah. <laughs> her and her family won like nine million pounds on the lottery. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I've never approached
0: a woman ever in my life. Really? Not once. Yeah. What, uh, you've never gone up and said, hi, my name's Mo? Never. Not once. Is, on. that, is that fear of rejection, do you think?
2: Ah, I, hold on. You've never, I thought you were saying that you've never approached, they always approach you. Yeah, they do, but <laughs> that's not the topic. <laughs> that's
1: not the topic. The the topic is actually I want some of that cologne. <laughs> no, I you know, I,
0: I have I have to say, in my mind, it is not fear of rejection, it's more fear of awkwardness. So in my mind, first of all, of course, I was lovingly married for so long, so I wouldn't approach a woman. But then by the time I was, you know, in my mid-40s when Nibel and I separated from one side, I never knew if the woman I'm approaching is single or not. And isn't it awkward if she's not, right? And then the second, which I know is a very interesting thing is I don't know, I don't, I'm not a a good judge of age. Okay. So, you know, thinking of myself as a mid 40s, like middle age crisis kind of person, uh, sort of saying like, okay, what if she's 19? Like, I don't know right? What if she's 25? Isn't that too young for me? Right. And so, so basically I never in my life,
2: not once ever walked to someone and said, hi. God, there's some stories you're selling yourself on, aren't there? Mm -hmm. There's some, I'm not not very good judge of age. I don't know whether they're married. Who knows, who knows what man ever knows whether the woman's in a relationship or not? Yeah. None. None of us do.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And I, how-
2: I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not saying this is something
1: I'm proud of. <laughs> no. I'm, I mean, this is my therapy session, right? Even though I, you know, I'm I'm you know, I'm, I'm now <laughs> I'm now you know in a wonderful relationship for a for a couple of months, so I'm
0: not, I'm not looking. But when you said that, I was like, and you you describe her as the ten out of ten, and I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like, why did I never do that?
2: I think that. When I was a kid, and we're similar ages, but I was 53 yesterday. So Where are you? Yeah. You're doing well, my man. Thank you, sir. Yeah. When I was young, we didn't have any of the tools that are at our disposal mm. today. Mm-mm. And so what was what were your choices? You could meet somebody at work. Yeah, boring. You could meet somebody on public transport on the way to work. Less boring. You could meet somebody in a bar or a nightclub. Uh-huh. You could be introduced by a family member. Yeah or one of your mate's sisters (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's, it's not like it's not like you had many options and so when you interact I mean and of course before we had these devices we interacted with each other so much more yeah but um you know I I I worked when I was young I worked at a dry ski slope in London and the, the girls that worked at the dry ski slope were the girls that I dated You know, when you're at school, you take the kids from school and I'm sure at university you find... Yeah, you know,
0: statistically
2: until the 70s, I think the average
0: American would get married to a person that lived within the same block or two blocks away. There you go. And, And that was it, basically. And I think the idea was that because there were very few opportunities you were not as dreamy as people are today. So, you know, you just looked around you in the in the same, you know, few buildings of, of a block and you go like, oh, she's the nicest or he's the nicest. Fine, let's go ahead and do yeah. this, right? Uh, which is quite interesting because today's world, I think, is we're being spoiled by all of those products, if you want, whether that's in dating and relationships or in, in business, as a matter of fact. I mean, I, I look at your business and, you know, I... I I work with the lovely Danielle, who's was the CEO of, uh, uh, of Safe Hands. And the reality is, unless you're very specific about what you're offering, and you're very unique, and you're very, you know, perhaps a lot better than a competitor, there are way too many people offering the same thing.
2: You think about it, you know, here in Dubai, we have a gazillion real estate brokers, and a gazillion Probably, yeah, real estate dozen, yeah. uh, agencies. I mean, how many, 12,000 or something there are in companies, yeah. yeah. And so how do they differentiate themselves? I have no idea. You know, they say, well, our service is better. Well, everyone says that. We'll sell your property faster. Well, everybody says that. Some of them wear, you know, a three-piece suit to look different. Some of them wear a polo shirt and jeans to look different. You know, unless you're going to dress up. The actual product is not different at all. I mean,
0: yesterday I was looking at uh, at, uh, Dubazel, the uh, the classified place for, for cars. It just hit me that I may want to get a truck at a point in time to go back to my roots of handcrafts and so on. You know, and I will never do it, but why not? So... You just look for any brand and there are like 10,000 cars for sales, right? And, and it's, it, there is so much out there and yet humanity somehow continues to think that there is v- value. Like, I don't understand how could there be, I'm not sure, I'm, I haven't checked, but I'm sure if you checked for a Rolls Royce in Dubai, you'll probably find 100 for sale, right? How can we associate value with anything that still has a 100 of it on sale? Right. And, you know, it, it's quite interesting how um, that abundance, I think, has spoiled our
2: uh, our lives so, so much. It's interesting. You know, I used to be the guy that would buy a new car every six months. I think you've had cars and oh, I've had cars. You? Yeah. I, I've got this this desire to keep my car. I know. And I don't for as long as I possibly can, I know, I know. and it, it went through 190,000 kilometres the other day. It did it, and I, and well I was done. so happy. I'm like, oh, yeah. this, this is coming to 250. This is, <laughs> this is, and I was really. It's a brown. very interesting different you know, kind yeah. of joy, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, and my wife's like, please get a new car, get a new car, and I'm like, no, I just get this one. If I get to get, I'll get it resprayed. She's like, <laughs> why? Just get a new car because it will cost you money. I'm like, I oh, know, but this car's never let me down. It's my best friend. And, absolutely, you know, I've got an emotional attachment to it now now and uh, I'm going to hold on to it shakes head you she know what away. I did recently so of all my old cars you know I had a I had
0: a, a fleet yeah I apologize I'm not that way anymore but <laughs> I had one car when Ali habibi my son Ali when he wanted to buy a car of course being a spoiled rich brat at the time I'm not anymore everyone I basically said anything you want habibi anything like you want a Porsche 911 I'll get you a Porsche 911 And he, in his very, very gentle and kind way, was like, Papa, that's not nice for my friends. My friends can't afford this. So if you're really, really kind, buy me a little bit, a small SUV, so we can put the band equipment in it. He had this uh, band. They were famous in Dubai. And so we did that. And then it was one day he was at one of his friends, and some driver rammed it, literally, in Marina. And so it was totaled. And he was about to go to uni, so he, he sort of said you know what, I'm not going to buy another one. Can I use your car every now and then? So he used my Audi A8, which is now 20 years old. Exactly. And 140,000 kilometers on it. And I recently decided, you know what, it's an Audi. It's supposed to drive a million kilometers. So I basically took it. I restored cars for so long. So I took it to the same guys that I used to restore cars with. And they were like, why would you do this? This is an Audi. It's not like one of those fancy cars. And yeah, and I decided, you know what? I'm gonna drive this every day until it's three hundred thousand kilometers. Hug him when I'm getting in. Hug him when I'm getting out.
2: And honestly, it's such a joy. It's it feels brand new. It runs. When so does that good. happen? Because my my dad keeps cars for forever now. But back when I was young, he didn't. And I used to watch him, and I'm like, Dad get a new car get anybody no this and my dad comes from the era of a peugeot 504 you know the the yeah. everlasting african exactly car the thing that never goes. well it does go wrong it's easy to fix and so my dad my dad's he's a toyota man now and he has mm-hmm. a land cruiser but Those it's like a 20 years yeah he's like but it's never gonna break and if it does i'll get it fixed and i'm like why not buy a new one And now I'm the the guy that sits there and I talk to you. And it's like, where do we get to a point in our life where we go, yeah, enough of that. That's a bit ridiculous. I think there was a meme or
0: a sound clip by Morgan Freeman where he said there is an age beyond which you are not impressed by a lot of it or most of the shit that impressed you before. I mean, the, the reality of the matter is that you try things, right, and then... Yeah, like I tried it. They were advertising it to me as this incredible piece of success and joy and it's not really, right? And, and I think we start to value longevity. Like, you know, I'm looking forward to the day where you're probably gonna look older than I am when you're 65, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it was really, it, 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 I've, I love those things. I love the idea of we've gone through life together, right? I don't know. When did, did that happen? I think when i stopped trying to impress others i mean i rarely ever tried to impress girls but you know after my separation i did a little bit but now i don't and you know it's
2: wait i tell you what you remember the time that mark zuckerberg said i have i only wear gray t-shirts and i only wear these black jeans or whatever it was that he wears i have the same 10 t-shirts and 10, 10 pairs of jeans So I don't have to think about stuff. Now, every young person that watched him say that on a video was sitting there going you're mad but every older person was like that's a really good idea <laughs>
1: <laughs> how, how many t-shirts do i need yeah. I, I actually have exactly 10. yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and i'm planning to go so i'm going to london in, in a couple of weeks time and i buy them from uniqlo uh-huh. so i'm planning to go with five of them and come back with a new five and you know that's <laughs> it. the old five would remain you know given to someone or a
2: charity you exactly. find your color in your thing, you know. My kids say to me, Dad, why do you always wear blue? And I'm like, I like blue. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's yeah, it. Yeah, I can't yeah, give them anything else. Yeah, but no what about dark answer. green yeah, or brown yeah, yeah. or bait? And I'm like, but I like blue. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but hold on. So, so, but you're still very passionate about what you do. It's not about, so, so you're not excited about things. I think we all get to that point at a point in time. But when you do something, like you really put your heart in it
2: work-wise philanthropy and so on i think i think men whoever that man is needs needs mission and purpose Mm. and i think that when you don't have that which i didn't for a period of time when you don't have that it's um it's a very it can become a very dark world very quickly Mm. and so mission and purpose enables you to be really passionate or enables me to be really passionate i've got to focus on something so you know let's say you and i you've got aquariums here so let's say you and i as we love aquariums should we start an aquarium business yes let's okay if we Obviously. started an, <laughs> if we started an aquarium business the, the the laser focus i would have around that the reading the studying the planning the thought about being in that business best partner would be, be, be consuming <laughs> <laughs> the way your fish is dying in there <laughs> but for me it would be just like you know honed in when i've got lots of different things to work on i struggle to focus so i need one thing and then then to do it until until i'm ready to give it to somebody else to do something with and then move on if if i've got five things to deal with at a time invariably i don't get very far so and then that doesn't have to be, be be work related that could be you know a diet or fitness or or something related to the things that i care about taylor my eldest when she left university she she applied for five jobs and she had four interviews and she got four rejections And so in that moment, she was like, her head was down. You know, she's driven and focused, but she was devastated. And I'm like... Why, why would you be devastated? She's like, well, dad, because I applied for five, I had four interviews. They all said, no, what's wrong with me? <laughs> and I'm like, you just left university and you're useless. That's what's wrong with you right now. You're, you've no, you're no value to a business. Go
1: get me a hundred no's.
2: But what I said to her, I said, look, you, this, this is the way you approach it. So we sat and planned it. And I went laser focused with her on, the, you know, the job sites she had to go to, how she would use LinkedIn, how she would then go and uh, go to jo- uh, recruitment companies. And I made her apply for 30 jobs a day, every day for a month. Wow. And so she applied for 30 jobs a day and made a report to me at the end of every day, those 30 jobs. Well, at the end of a month, she'd applied for 600 jobs. She'd had umpteen interviews and she ended up being in the position where she could choose who she worked for. And she worked for the company she wanted to, but giving her that focus and me focusing on it just for that month, you know, we were all in that deep, no toes in, we were that deep in the water. Um, That was the outcome. And it was to demonstrate to her what you can do when you really apply yourself. Okay. But also to me, it gave me something really exciting to focus on for that period Mm. of time. I mean, I I I always tell people that. I mean, the you
0: know, finding a job, finding a mate, finding a whatever, doing anything really is a matter of practice. So, the, basically, the more you're you're applying yourself to it, the more you go to interviews. Yes, you get rejected. Is the Byproduct, but the real product when you think about it is that you've learned something you've you know you've had a a question that you haven't heard before now you can think about it and you can go back and uh, and answer it better next time can I ask you you said men need purpose Do you do believe women need differently I'm not a woman
2: (laughs) Ah, great Um, answer and so to to answer on behalf of women I think would be um, unfair of me Uh, I think we as a human race I think we need purpose and but our purposes are different but from my own experience and through men that i've spoken to when i've seen men that don't have purpose i've i've found them to be in the same or similar dark or lost space that i was in when i didn't have it i think that's so interesting because i one of my favorite interviews on this
0: podcast was was edith eger and edith was drafted to uh, auschwitz when she was 16 and she took a very different path in life than the very famous Viktor Frankl, yeah, Man's Search for Meaning, was all about meaning and purpose and so on. She was all about compassion and nurturing and connection and being the best version of herself. And at, at the end of the interview, it just hit me so strongly that in that same situation, a man and a woman would take a very different path. I mean, man and woman is a, is biology, but I would always say masculine and feminine would ve- take a very different path. Masculine would be more about doing and hitting targets and impacts in life and achieving things, while feminine would be much more around being, okay? And who am I and how do I present myself and how do I connect to the rest of being and so on and it's it's quite interesting of course feminine and masculine is not man and woman you could be very very feminine and have male biology that doesn't matter but that's really interesting when you said man search for purpose i would probably say the feminine would search for for other things compassion love connection
2: that book had a big impact on me that man search search, that was one of the well still to this day one of the best books i've ever read and it is an incredible book you should read edith's though yeah yeah Yeah. you've made me want to
0: now yeah i mean she's an incredible angel i mean at age 94 now uh, she's still out there trying to make a difference to the world and i have to say it's a very they're complementary they are very very necessary views of the same topic if you want from two angles so let's talk about meaning against all reason and logic you recently took yourself on a journey that is dangerous, that is costly, that is difficult, that is against the advice of many people uh, given to you because of, it, of how dangerous it is to, to build a documentary around the topic of human trafficking, which I have to say is one of my top purposes in life is to try and do something about human trafficking and slavery, modern day slavery, very difficult topic, very, very violent topic. Tell me about that story
2: and how far did it go? So I used to, I used to go here in Dubai, we have something called the Capital Club. And I used to go on every Saturday to something called the Social Capital Club, which was part of the global sustainability network. Uh, run by a guy called Raza Jaffa. And each week we would have a talk from somebody who was doing something worthy. And then we would talk about what we could do to focus on goal A of the UN Global Sustainability Goals, in which trafficking is part of. And then I met a lady called Maria. She came in and uh, she was this little demure Portuguese lady. And she told us her story. And as she told us her story, I was blown away. By what this woman had achieved and in very simple terms maria is an orphan herself from portugal after a crazy journey ended up being cabin crew for emirates went to bangladesh was there for two days on a layover saw these kids that were struggling in the slums and decided to do something and she flew back to dubai sold her possessions flew back to bangladesh and started to try and help a family and then she googled how to raise money for charity and the first thing that came up on Google was climb Everest. Now, this is a woman that's never even stepped her foot in a gym. And so in her mind in that moment was, okay, so if I climb Everest and I get sponsors, I can help more kids. It wasn't, oh, my God, I've got to climb the biggest mountain in the world, okay, and might, and might die. It was, I just need to get over this hurdle to help more kids. So the positioning in her brain I thought was f- f- fascinating. The fact that most people look at the biggest mountain in the world and are, are terrified by it, but she just saw it as something in the way of helping children. Mm. And so she then did that. She raised some money. She helped more children. She built a school in Bangladesh to teach children English so that she could bring them here to the UAE. And now she's brought over 600 kids here, Oh wow! Um, educated them here through thick and thin. How does she bring them? I mean, does she find foster parents for them? She, she brings them to her. She's in at the moment in her own two bedroom apartment on the Shakeside Road. I think there's twelve kids with her.
1: Oh my god.
2: She's got fifty kids here at the moment in various accommodations. She rents apartments. She brings some of the mothers as well, sometimes. Um and her job in her mind is to give them an education and to get them into university and to get them a start in life. And for eighteen years she's been doing this, and she is the most driven, stubborn caring and compassionate human being i've ever met so i was really moved by what she was doing and i then asked if i could meet the kids and so one day she allowed me to meet 12 of the girls and within a second i'd fallen in love with all 12 of them and felt i had a sense of duty to try and help and so this is the, she said do you want to meet the kids i said yes she said where should we meet i'm like you tell me anywhere um, she goes i don't know i said how about we go to the mall of the emirates so she's like, fine. So we met at the Mall of the Emirates. These kids from the age of eight to twelve came over, said hi to me. I said, Right, kids, who wants ice cream? And Maria looked at me and she said, just be careful. They've never had ice cream. Oh my God. And in that moment I was like, What do you mean they've never had ice cream? I'm like, my brain was like, every, every kid has ice cream, but these kids had never had no, it. No, not every kid's. And so we took them to the the fun fair in the mall and and then we we took them. I'll never forget something one of the, the kindest, most genuine people I've ever met did did something for me that day. I posted on Instagram while I was with these kids that you, my audience, please, I need somebody to come and join me at the Mall of the Emirates. I need you to give me three hours of your time and ask nothing in return. Is anybody out there that can help me? I got a message from a guy that owned a real estate brokerage called Loai, Providence Real Estate. He said to me, where are you? what time do you need me? And I said, by my message, I sent back what time I needed. He said, I'm on my way. You didn't say what for? I just said, I need some help with some kids. Dropped everything, came. And he then spent the next few hours with the girls and I, we went into Carrefour, and I said to Maria, what do the girls need? And she said, they need everything. And I'm like, okay, what do they need? Tell me what they need. She said, everything. And there's myself and Loai with four trolleys, and we walked into the into the the, the the Carrefour, and I went over and I said to the kids, "Get yourself some pajamas." And they're looking at me. They're like, "What to keep?" And I'm like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah. Get yourself a pair of pajamas each. Get yourself some sneakers. Get some underwear. Whatever it was. They were fascinated by hair clips, like truly fascinated by butterflies and 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 stuff, pretty things, teddy bears. And I saw them just standing, looking at these, these hair clips. And so we got them hair clips and, and then the female sanitary products and, and anything that they needed. We filled these trolleys up with, we go to the counter and this low, eye, this friend of mine, he refuses to allow me to pay. He pays for everything, for everybody, very kind gesture. Something I'll always have huge admiration for him for He's a genuinely decent human being, but in the, in that, in those few hours, I was then connected to these girls and I wanted to try and make them smile. That was, that was my thing, is that how do I make them smile? So I contacted another friend of mine called Tyrone Reed who was the CEO of Alibar Enterprises. He's now the head of Emirates Airlines Catering Division. I said, Alibar Enterprises, you've got Candylicious, the kids' candy store. I said, is there any way I could bring these kids over and they could have a look in the shop? And uh, he said to me, how many you got? I said, i got 12. He said, leave it with me. The next day he said, meet me at Marquette, which is next to Candylicious. So I met him at Marquette with the girls. They met Ty, they bought them lunch. They get a VIP tour in Candylicious. And every one of them was told, you can have whatever you want. Take whatever you want. None of them took anything more than a tiny little bag of sweets. He then took them into the cinema. He had a private screening of Aladdin for them. They had Aladdin, and then he took them to learn to ice skate. The generosity of of people is, is it's overwhelming for me because their kindness means a lot. And so then it was just, what do I do? I need to I need to keep helping. And, and so I, that's what I've done. I was, it was my birthday yesterday, and my wife's like, what are you doing? What do you want to do? Who do you want to see? And I'm like, we're seeing the girls. And she's like, you know, but what about your friends catching up? You want to have lunch? I'm like, no, I just want to see the girls. And they've grown now and you know, this is 5 years ago so they've grown and they're now they're now good friends and some teenagers and going through their challenges in life and went through their, their their exam results yesterday but it was that that really started the the idea around what I could do to make a difference
0: hold on b- before we continue there so i mean in a very interesting way you're shocking me because I have not actually realized that this exists in Dubai. The lush, you know, very, very fancy. Yes, of course I can imagine there are people that don't have as much, but people who don't have at all, that are not, you know, in the blue collar labor camp type thing as kids. We didn't used to have this in the in the region because, you know, if you couldn't afford to keep your kids here, most workers would keep them back home and travel back and forth, right? And I think when you talk about it, it's not at all Dubai, you know, I think there are of those kids back in Bangladesh, there will be several million in Africa. There will be several million and so on in a very unusual way, while you focus only on 12 of them, or maybe at that point you focused on 12 of them. This is something that the world needs to wake up to that when we talk about discriminating, I think. That the idea that some children have never had any caring, giving, any childhood at all is something that everyone needs to wake up to.
2: Look, the the issues are societal, they're cultural, they're... You know, I heard a statistic the other day, $1.2 trillion arrives into Africa every year in aid. And only 15% of it gets to where it needs to go. And so... While there's people that have got their hands on the generosity of others, there's, there's always going to be these problems. One of the other things I think is really important to understand, though, as well, is that a lot of the time we're giving them fish rather than teaching them to fish. And I think a lot of problems can be solved if we spend the time. And that's why education is so important. And that's why Maria cares so much, because she brings the children here to get them into school gets them scholarships, gets them to school, and she, then she wants them to go to university. And some of them are in university in Portugal and America and stuff, and she gets them in because if they've got an education, then they can have be free thinkers, they can be critical thinkers, and they can build careers. And if they build careers, then they can provide. The 12 that I've worked with, I've obviously, I have a, a close connection with that, that crazy 12, but there's 50 or so of them that I, I see on a regular basis.
0: Okay, so, so now you're awakened,
2: let's call it. Yeah, so what, So then what happened is the following. So the, the actual story of the documentary came. The podcast was all about personal development, and I was interviewing Tony Robbins and Gary Vee and all these people, and, and, and great people. Then I interviewed a guy called Nick Yaris who was on oh, yes. death row yeah, for 12 years for a crime he didn't commit. And in that one interview of me not speaking for 45 minutes, just with my jaw open, as he told me this extremely painful yet beautiful story, I thought, I need, I need more stories like this. This is interesting to me. And so I went down the path of learning about people that had been through unimaginable experiences, unimaginable, horrific journeys. And then I met a guy called Leon Logothetis, who had a TV show called The Kindness Diaries. And in that TV show, he believed in the kindness of others. And so he decided to try if he could travel around the world and rely on the kindness of others. Hmm. And he could accept food, shelter, and fuel for his motorbike, but he couldn't accept money. And he traveled around the world and made a documentary. And when he experienced an extreme act of kindness, he replayed it with a life-changing gift. So there was a homeless man in America that helped him he got him an apartment. There was a guy in India with a tuk-tuk that helped him that, was, that had broken and fallen apart. He bought him a new tuk-tuk. Leon was um, very lonely as a boy. And so his best friend was his dog. And in Peru, he saved, you know, he paid for 100 dogs for a year to be looked after. All this kind of stuff. Great, great gifts. And so I interviewed him. And at the end of the interview, I said to him, look, I'm a bit jealous that you got a TV show and I don't. Hmm. And he said, well, why haven't you got one? And just looked straight at me. And I had no answer for him. And he said, if you had a TV show, what would it be about? I said, human trafficking. Why? Because of what I'd seen from Maria with what happens to the children there and other guests that had been on the show that had been trafficked. I had data from Homeland Security. 500,000 kids go missing every year in America. Five? 500, 500,000 kids every year in the United States of America disappear. How is that not reported? I mean, or am I not... Hundred thousand, seventy-five 75% of them from the foster care system. That's America. Human trafficking takes place in every town and every city on this planet. You can be from Middle England, from Coventry, Rugby, um, Leamington Spa, not the big cities, towns. But you can also be in Mayfair and Hyde Park and Belgravia or you can be in Manhattan or you can be in Rodeo Drive. It takes place there too. Human trafficking is way, way bigger than drugs because people can be sold over and over again. Drugs can't, they're sold once. And so the money in human trafficking is huge. And I went on a journey, research journey, to find out more and more about it. And the more I learned about it, the more pained I felt because of it, the more angry I got, and the more I wanted to try and do something. Because most people are completely oblivious to what's going on. They don't even know what's going on under their nose. And it happens on every minute of every day in every major city in the world. What happens when a child is trafficked? So... That, that, that depends, but uh, I'll give you some examples. In Nepal, where we filmed, there is a community in Nepal uh, called the Badi community. Now in Nepal, there's 126 castes. The Badi are below the bottom cast. So they're like the dust of life, you know, the dirt of the earth. They're not allowed to go to school, not allowed to go in supermarkets. You know, anyone that's got the name Baddy is not. Every child at the age of nine years old in that community becomes a prostitute. And they either become a prostitute in their community or nearby communities, or they get removed. So in the documentary, Hannah Baddy, who's the the hero in that part of the show, Hannah's sister, one night, went missing. So all the kids went to sleep next to mum and dad. Literally, next day, sister was gone. Fifteen years later, somebody said, I think I found your sister. And she was in Delhi, in the red light district. And she'd been taken from asleep and she was gone and hannah wanted to go find her sister when she heard her sister was there and they're like you can't just go find your sister there's pimps and you know there's danger and so so the, the lady that think, thought she found hannah's sister then went back to delhi and said look have you got a sister called hannah the lady said yes she said okay we need to do what we can to get you out of here but the pimp wasn't going to allow that to happen but she had a customer And the customer was a guy uh, that was a delivery driver that had a motorbike. His motorbike broke and Hannah's sister had given some money to the guy to fix his motorbike. On the back of that, he fell in love with her. As the conversations were going, he said, I'll rescue her. I'll get her out. I can get her out. And he risked his life to get this woman that he he was a customer of, a woman he was paying for sex, who he then fell in love with. He risked his life to get her out and they brought her back and while we're filming the documentary we meet we meet them all and we hear the story and trafficking is taking place at so many different levels children are sold babies are sold babies are sold cross-border children are put cross-border abduction takes place very often a lot of it is incestual as well with families doing that kind of stuff in different parts of the world and so it's if you were to think about your own child it would be absolutely horrific and shocking what we do is we become numb to it because it's easier not to face how painful it might be there's a guy called Kailash Satyarthi who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Indian guy saved eighty thousand kids from child slave labour, and I met him. He did it with his own hands, and they made a, a movie about him called The Price of Free. And it's like anything. I think if you're if you're touched with a family member that gets cancer, there's 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 nothing that will stop you trying to do what you can to support anything related to that. It changes how you think, and it changes. What's important in life and whilst we might be old farts that don't want to change our cars anymore it's very profound what changes in your thinking and your belief systems your situation is a great example with how you changed because of the passing of Ali and how that impacted you and you went on a a different journey if I took you to meet the girls that Maria has here for example if I took you to Nepal with me to see these girls in this community that are Prostituted to policemen and politicians and local businessmen, and are nine years old with makeup on. Okay, having to make themselves available to have sex with men, uh, or Lena from Bulgaria, who I met, who was seventeen years old and fell in love with a man a, a few years older than her. For three months, they went on beautiful dates. He took her on holiday, and after three months, he said to her, "You got to get a job, hun. You're living off me." She's like, okay, fair enough. He said, I think there's a job at the hotel. Go, go check it out. Anyway, she doesn't get around to it. He drives her to the hotel, says, we'll, we'll find a job for you. She thinks bar work, maybe waitressing, I don't know. He takes her to one of the hotel rooms and he makes her have sex with 10 men that night and says, if you say a word, I'll kill your mum and your sister will be next. For three years, every night, She's raped by 10 men every single night. And after three years, they then drive her to Amsterdam and put her in the red light district. She's in one of those shop windows there, and she's for three years selling herself with the pimp. After three years, a customer realizes she doesn't want to be there, invites her to his apartment to pay her for sex there. When she gets to his apartment, he takes her mobile phones, he throws them in the canal, he calls the police. Now you say, why didn't she call the police? Because when you're from Bulgaria, you don't trust the police. So you don't think you can trust them in Amsterdam either. It took her 10 years of fighting to get her pimp put in jail for three years. For three years. Three years. 10 years of fighting. And she was trafficked from Bulgaria. And she is one of many. We walked around the red light district. You're not allowed to film there in Amsterdam. We met people there. 80 or 90% of people are trafficked. The statistics on women that are trafficked that are on porn sites on that we go to, Pornhub, U Porn, Red Tube, and, and all these other different porn sites. Over 70% of the women are trafficked. They're not they're not doing porn because they think it's a great job and they want to earn some cash. They're being forced into it. And this is, this is young ladies from the first world, America, Canada, you know, Australia, New Zealand, England, that happens. And it happens constantly. And once you become exposed to that world, you can't, you can't turn around and say, nothing to do with me. So what's my, what's my way of doing something? If I can film a documentary to bring to your attention what's going on and to give you real life examples of three incredible human beings that have done incredible work at trying to protect children and it's not just girls, it's boys as well. Boys are trafficked too. Then I'm playing a part in trying to raise awareness around this subject. But I, I have found such purpose and such mission and such a a dramatic and graphic realization about things that are really important in life versus what you perceive to be important you know I come from a world of wealth management and financial advice I was teaching people to be millionaires I was teaching people to have these big pension pots and teaching people to build these big portfolios out, you know, and invest in these wonderful things so that the, so that they could have more, so that they could drive the next new car or have more lovely holidays or whatever it is. And of course we need financial security to some degree, but most of the stuff we spend money on every day it makes me cringe because the amount of work that can be done with that money. Absolutely oh man absolutely it drives me mad and 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 people it don't drives get it me mad. And, and i see. didn't get it so i can't blame people because no, i didn't get it because i was the guy driving the fancy cars buying the expensive watches i was the guy and so how do i get people to stop thinking like that how do i get people to go hold on uh, what why do i need a big house why do i need you know what what do we need we need kindness and we need compassion and we need to try and help people that are less fortunate than ourselves. We've got to teach people. We've got to educate them so that they can have a chance of being independent, critical and free thinking human beings rather than brainwashed, poisoned and broken people, which so many of them are.
0: Can I ask you? So I had, uh, I had dinner once with a, uh, a wonderful lady, I actually don't remember her name. We met once in a conference, it was in Bali, she was Australian and she's dedicated her life to try to make a difference to human trafficking. Okay. But at her own scale. So she, she would go out there and, you know, try to find candidates to save if you, if you think about it. I have given a significant chunk of money to save the slaves. Okay. And by the way, I, I believe in what they're trying to do, but the only, the only thing they could do is raise awareness or rehabilitation, right? Both of those, when I had conversations with them, the CEO at the time of Save the Slaves and, and that lady that I don't remember the name of and I wish I would meet her again, they said that the problem is that there is economic benefit in trafficking humans. So if you take one person out, by definition, you're leaving a sort of like a, an employment gap to traffic someone else in. Okay, that if you prosecute and, and actually murder a gang that is trafficking, what ends up is a gap in the market appears so that either the other gangs will take it or a new gang will show up. What is the answer? How can humans... I mean, I'm 100% with you. My heart breaks every time I think of the topic. Perhaps this is why I don't think about it all the time because I would stop functioning, Right? But how do you stop this?
2: In summary, you don't. All the time, there's three things in life that if you were selling them, people would want to buy them, okay? So if you and I invented a tablet that could help people lose 20 kilos in the next four weeks, we'd be billionaires, okay? So everyone wants to lose weight fast. Everybody wants to gain significance if you and i could show people how to get a million followers on instagram in the next four weeks we'd make a fortune and everybody wants to get rich quick money initially means security and independence but then it means power and if you look at most governments in the world even when you look at the salaries, and I'm not talking about the third world, I'm talking about the first world. The salaries of politicians aren't, aren't actually that high compared to being in the, you know, in the business world. So why become a politician? Oh, because I want to affect change. Okay, nice tagline, you know, nice tagline. But truly, do you truly, truly want to do that, or do you truly want to be rich? And it's like anyone, you know. It doesn't matter how much money you and I have got. Let's go and let's go and spend the afternoon in Monaco tomorrow afternoon. There's always going to be someone richer, mm. and and we don't settle because if you've got a million, there's people that have got more. Now, for for, for the people that have got ten thousand and you've got a million, you're you're the kingpin, you know, you're you're the player. But when you've got a million and everyone around you's got twenty million, yeah, you're then. now do I get twenty? And that's the problem we have because the politicians are power hungry. They want to control it and, and that money is what they drive that with. And, and even if you look at the socialists as well, there's a lot of socialists that have the same type of philosophy. Brazil's a great example and there are many other examples too. Most people, and a great example of it is, is, is and I find Brexit a really good example of, of how politics ruins the world. You take Brexit, now you had the for and against everybody that was saying we should stay was given reasons why we should stay everyone for leave was given reasons why we should leave if we leave we're going to do x y and z 500 millions going to the national health service blah 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 all this wonderful stuff none of it manifested itself it was all lies of course. all lies so then the general public were then asked to make decisions about lies so make a vote based around these pack of lies now they're not lies Trust me, they're not lies. And to me, it's such a great example of how there is so much propaganda that is fed to people that they can't think independently. COVID was another wonderful example of that, Amazing. you know, all the, all the information exactly. coming out now of how all the COVID jabs were a con and a scam and all this my face mask wearing stuff was silly. And it will only go to prove yet again that the politicians were only trying to serve themselves. Correct. Because if your job was to serve your country and put your country first, you probably wouldn't have made those decisions. So that tells us that... Now, now, now I don't think you can ever change that. Because where, where on earth is there a, a group of people, even if you take a religious group, an NGO, they all have a narrative. Correct. I mean, Free Economics is one of my
0: favorite books of yes. all time. Basically saying that your doctor's number one priority is not to cure you, it's to bill you. You know, your lawyer's number one priority is not to end the case, it's to prolong it because that's their own target. That's their own money.
2: We have this every day in one of the companies I own, which is an insurance brokerage and medical insurance. We know, you know anyone living here in dubai if you're not living here you won't know this but if you live here in dubai and you go to the doctors or to a hospital or to a clinic and you've got a runny nose you'll have spent 200 pounds or a thousand dirhams before you've even before you've even taken a breath with you know we need to do a blood test we need to do this or that you know i just needed some vitamin c or some panadol Mm -hmm. the hospital's objective is to get you spending as much as you can through your insurance company not to heal you so you're absolutely right and it's coming back to the trafficking side of things, there's an interest in it continuing. It's human slavery. It's, I mean, I I know stories of people that are in a position of trust in their countries, like genuine position of trust. I know the victims. I've met victims of this who their own leaders of their countries raped, kept under lock and key, and abused and it's it's heartbreaking but we're we'll look at the viewing numbers for the kardashians look at the viewing numbers for the on netflix at the moment what's that the indian matchmaking lady okay the the figures are off the charts for fiction by comparison the figures aren't off the charts for documentaries so can we solve it no can we have a good go at it yeah, can we make a difference? If I make a difference to one person with that, I've made a difference, and I suppose that's the only place that I can work from. So, how, how does how do my listeners make a difference? To me, you have to be very careful about who you give money to. So, and I think it's easy for us to give money. I think money is like an easy easy thing to give. But I would ask all of your listeners to be prepared to give one afternoon a month maybe a Sunday afternoon once, or a couple of hours once a month to sit and spend time with people that have been trafficked and listen to their stories and and try and find ways in their own way that they feel that they want to try and help here in Dubai it's very easy I can put people in touch with whoever you need to be put in touch with but I think you need to learn first and you need to hear it from people's you know, mouths, you know, themselves. So the girls from Bangladesh at 12 years old, every girl once they have the first period are married to a man of 30. Imagine a 12-year-old child having to then be forced to have sex with a man who's 30 years old when you're 12. 12. It's just, it's bonkers. And it's not just, this is such a wide field with so much going on. But I think you have to learn. And maybe listening to this, if this right now is impacting you in any way, then, 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 Take the time, reach out to me and I can put you in touch with people or go to Operation Underground Railroad. They're a great organization as well that are doing incredible work at helping sufferers of human trafficking. There's other organizations that that are working with this kind of stuff. Go and spend time and learn, just volunteer. That's what I would say is time. Give your time. If you for the next three months gave an afternoon a month for the next three months, you would learn an awful lot and you would be so moved that you would do something. And I think the other thing is that I, I just come from a world now that where I think that there's, what have we got, 8 billion people on this planet? If everyone was just really kind to one person.
0: Yeah, that's it.
2: Just one person. So I was really kind to you. And that was all, we're just focused on being really kind. How can I be the best friend to this guy? How can I help him? How can I listen to him? How can I, how can I be somebody that's of value to him? If we all did that to one person, my God, the world would change in an instant. A hundred percent. And all of these problems, or not all, but many of these problems would go away. There are old people in old people's homes right now that are lonely as hell. They, they've got no family, nobody goes to see them, nobody talks to them. Go and spend some time. Go once a month and go and spend an afternoon with old people. There are people, you know, Egypt is famous for, you know, and I've learned all of this as well, famous for organ trafficking. You know, organ trafficking is huge in China and in Egypt. And down in the south of Egypt, people sell because they believe they're going to get something back only to be robbed, okay, afterwards. Go and spend time with people that suffer. Go and spend time with people that struggle. Go and spend time with people that are are disabled and less fortunate than you. And you just learn what's important. And you'll realize that the promotion at work isn't important. You'll realize that, you know, arguing over what your job title is going to be on your business card isn't so important. It's the impact that you try and have on others and the, the time that you spend trying to do that that really, really impacts the world. And you don't have to be Mother Teresa. You don't have to be the person that dedicates your whole life to it. Just dedicate. Just dedicate a couple of hours a month. We've all got a couple of hours a month. It could be one weekday evening, you know. We've all got a couple of hours a month and we could all do so much more rather than worrying about ourselves let's try and try and be kind of that way. And that's, that's the way I see it anyway.
0: Yeah. I, I, I want to let this sink in because the pain of becoming aware of the reality of the suffering of some of those people. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable. I understand that. And you may, you may tell me more, why, why are you bringing such a painful story to the podcast? This is my calm time of the week. You know, I slow down and I, and I just enjoy a bit of a quiet time with slow-mo, that, the reality is that compassion, that understanding of someone else's pain is in itself, like you just said, Spencer, is is in itself a reminder that whatever it is that you're going through is not that big of a deal. Honestly, if, if you have the time and safety and, and a, a digital device to listen to slow-mo, then by definition, you're in a much better place than those who are suffering. I would also say, even though... I agree with you that money is not the first thing to do. It's it's your time and effort and attention and kindness and compassion. I have found that investing in rehabilitation for those who leave human trafficking or are saved somehow from being trafficked, bringing them back into society is a good place to invest. More interestingly, I would say, stop feeding those industries. And I say that openly, Remember the next time you switch on a porn site that you're actually feeding the industry, that you're you're enjoying the suffering of that woman. And, and that's a very important... I've never been with a prostitute in my life, never paid for sex. I don't watch porn. But just remember, if you ever... People when I'm in Amsterdam will go and tell me, go and, you know, let's walk down the red light district. And part of human compassion is to say... How can I find joy in her suffering? And I really, really urge you, if you've paid for sex or if you're watching porn or if you're just being entertained by all of that, I urge you to remember that your joy, your pleasure is coming from the suffering of another. And I, I really think that's very 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 unacceptable spencer how do people find the documentary how how can the
2: documentary is coming out at the end of may so we're not far away now we've got a bit bit more voiceover work to do because we've got a few languages that we're dealing with so hopefully it'll be out we're uh, in discussions with netflix and discovery at the moment so okay uh, uh, and it will be called the chain
0: the chain so just before we finish because i know you want to move on I don't at all. Okay. Where did you get that from? Sorry. I, I want to move on from this topic because just, it's Just before we beautiful. finish,
2: I had people when they started hearing these stories on my podcast say to me, I can't listen to your podcast, it's too painful, leans into what you said earlier. What I've learned is that when you spend time with these people, of course, there's suffering, but there's also inspiration. 100%. And the inspiration for me is really powerful. What they've gone through and then turned their lives around to become something or become somebody or to improve is so amazing that it's almost, you know, people go to see a Tony Robbins or they're going to see you know, a motivational speaker. Spend, a, spend an hour with some of these kids. Uh, yeah. You walk away buzzing. You're on fire. You know, every week I see the, the Maria's girls. It's like a shot in my arm of gratitude it literally is It's that, you know, we don't remember gratitude enough. We forget gratitude. A lot of us do. Okay. And it's literally this huge injection that goes in my arm and I come away and I'm so grateful for life after I spend time with them. And so I think as much as it might be overwhelming for some people, I promise you that the upside is huge.
0: Yeah. It's a bit like going to the gym and feeling the sore muscles uh, so that you become more fit. I think observing the reality of life as it is and the suffering of some others, connecting deeply to them actually is the the exercise. It's the gym that really works on your being human, your compassion, your ability to to be grateful, to connect to others. I always, always will, will say this. I remember of everything, everything that Ali was amazing about, the one thing that got me completely connected to the spirit of that kid was I visited him in Boston only once. And he spent a year and a half or two and, two and a half years there in university, but I only once went and visited him. It was me and uh, Nibel, his mother, and Aya, his sister. And we went to visit and we were going into that place to have pancakes in the morning or whatever. And he says, okay, guys, I'll join you in a minute. And he doesn't realize that where we sat, we could see him as he walks to a homeless person an old lady, and he sits next to her. You know how so many of us would just walk to a homeless person and maybe give them a sandwich and then run away because, you know, they may be bad people. He sits next to her and he puts his back to the wall next to her. And you can see them. Like, first she was, like, shocked, and then you can see them chatting and then laughing, okay? And eventually, like, 15 minutes later, he gets up and he hugs her, okay? Okay? And then he puts his money, hand in his pocket and he gives her all that he had, which wasn't much, but it, it's all that he had. And I remember, I remember that woman looking at him as he's walking away and literally feeling like, I can't believe this man showed up in my life. And then she digs deep into her sack and gets out one little thing, I couldn't see what that is. And, and basically she runs after him and gives him what I believe must have been her ultimate possession. Okay, like the one that she was keeping for a happy day, which was a tin box sealed of liban, the yellow one. And she gave that to him and, and he was like, no, keep it. And she was like, no, 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 you have to keep it. I, you know, like, I really want you to have it. Then he comes, sits down next to us as if nothing happened. He doesn't even talk about it. He doesn't even say what he did. We didn't talk about it either. And and I remember that he kept that tin box almost like, you know how all of the rich people would keep the fancy cars and the yachts as symbol of their success. He kept that tin box for the rest of his life. Okay. Never opened it. Okay. And I kept it. I still keep it now that he left and never opened it. Because this to me, honestly, I think is what success in life is all about. It's not the next thing you're going to do and achieve. Like you rightly said, it's the, it's the next person you're going to touch the life of. Spencer, so we are talking about Unstressable here in Dubai, and, and working together on presenting that to the world. I have to say our world has become very stressful. Your focus here is on the UAE, where, of course, you know, the government's trying to do as much as they can to make life easy and so on. But you've committed a big part of what you do to helping in healthcare, in health and well-being and so on. And I'm actually trying to, to sort of ease us out of the very emotional conversation with a final bit around why do you do this? Why don't you do business in, you know, things that could be easier and make you more money?
2: Okay. Hmm. Corporate wellness was kind of like a, it's not a term I really like, like, like wellness. I like corporate wellness. I don't like, it seems like, <laughs> I agree. It you know, serious. some, some yeah. structured funded thing, but lockdown was a great experience for me. And it was, it was a great experience, a learning experience, but it wasn't a fun experience. Lockdown was difficult for me because I'm. I get my energy from people, so I like to be in an office full of people with, you know, a bit of banter. I, I like the guys to be at seven forty-five, getting their coffee and talking about the football scores the night before, and you know, there's just the fun, the fun stuff to make, make, make work a pleasure as opposed to just be about work, and that experience of, of people being at home made me realize how important that was, but how little companies really do to understand how their staff could really perform if they had all of the ingredients they need to be successful. And all of the ingredients typically used to be a career path, a a pay rise, a, a mission and purpose. But when I learned that sitting down and talking to somebody about their problems and understanding the challenges they're facing in their marriage and the impact it was having on their work or the challenges they were facing with an, an illness uh, or a million other things as I think about it and showing employees compassion and genuinely caring for people. People form, when you do that, they form an army like a brotherhood, almost like it's us against the rest of the world type of thing. Mm. And that brotherhood's really powerful because you find people then really supporting each other rather than being ego driven, trying to step over each other. Mm. And so that's why wellness is important to me because lots of companies look at how they can make more money. And often they look outwards rather than inwards. Hmm, that's such an interesting way of looking at it. Let's get more business. You know, we need more clients to create more revenue. Let's drive more revenue. As we spend money on marketing or advertising or X campaign or Y campaign. If you spent a fraction of that money looking at how you could make your employees really enjoy why they do what they do. Cuz remember, not everybody not everybody is pursuing something as gallant as pursuing something as deemed worthy. Some people are are HR managers or some people are, you know, the bookkeepers or whatever they may be. the, The guys that are working in the factory, it may not be their dream job, but they're working hard because they need to put food on the table. I want, I want people to go home from work every day and talk about work. And I want their family members or the husband or the wife, whoever it may be to sit down and think, wish I worked there. That sounds like a great place to be. And I think that we always, we always do our best when we're in the right environment, don't we? You know, we know we just as we do our worst when we know that we're being attacked and sniped and stuff like that. So for me, it's really important that businesses take that seriously, because we're not on the planet very long. And we spend a lot of time at work. Why can't we make it a load of fun? Why can't we make it a place, you know, you get up in every morning. And how often do you see this stuff, people posting? Oh, it's Friday. It's the end of the week. Can't wait to the weekend. It's like, wow, what a life you've got if you're spending five of those days or four and I a half or whatever it may, may be. Too, yeah. You know, going to work, going, you know, I've got to get through this. You know, one more day and it's the weekend or oh, Wednesday's hump day or whatever it may be. So why can't we get up and go to work every day and have fun knowing we get there? And it's not about, you know, bags and free food. It really isn't, you know, it's not about having a snooker table in the office. It's not, it's about knowing that, that people care about you, like really care about you. And I think that that, when that happens, it, it makes a difference to businesses. And so we're seeing the adoption more and more now, you know, more and more. It's not just the, the big blue chips that care about it. Smaller and smaller companies care about it. And I just, all of my life, I love getting up on Monday morning and go to work. I love Monday morning. It's just you like just it's such a doctor? A <laughs> I, I love... And, and if I spend five days of the week loving it, imagine if it was flipped. I had five days of the week that were pure joy and two days that were a bit of a struggle. And you had you had five days that were a bit of a struggle and two days of pure... I'm winning.
1: Yeah, I'm winning by yeah, a yeah, long yeah, way. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, the, the ultimate is that the other two days are... are of also course, that's, that's <laughs> utopia too. That's utopia, but... Now, if you could just create that, and sometimes you you don't have the power in an employed position, you don't have the power to make that change, um, but companies do, and companies need to deploy different tactics, and, and they need to be willing to teach skills to help their staff develop better knowledge themselves around areas. And Unstressable is such a great example of that. It's like build, creating something for employees of a company a tool for them to use now again not everyone will use it and not everyone loves it like everything we do it's not for everyone all the time but if you can if you can get most people sitting there learning something new that will help them initially get through the day but then look forward to the day and then be excited about the day because the way they've positioned it in the head,
1: man. You think
2: about it. You and I had a company, and we had a hundred employees, and every one of those people was on fire all day every day, and we were all in it together. Hey, you never see a company like that that doesn't succeed. Yeah, yeah. That's that, that you, was the early the early Google I joined was exactly like that. Yeah, we, we were wondering why they were paying us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why I think that's why I think I do we do that. I think that. I come from a world of financial services. And so I used to regard myself as the fifth emergency service. Mm -mm. So I used to say there's the police, there's the ambulance, there's the fireman, there's the automobile association, and then there's me. And I I, I know it's mad, but I used to, I I still believe it now because I believe that most people have got a very, very unhealthy relationship with money. Absolutely true. And, and their psychology around money is weird. They don't understand money and they, they they run credit card debts off and they're paying 40% interest. They're like, yeah, well, I'm paying the installments every month. And it's just like, this makes no sense. And so for me, it was like, my job was to stop me people messing up their money if I wanted to bulletproof people. Mm. Because I know when people have no money worries, it takes a big weight out of a relationship and a big weight out of desires at work. Yeah, And so- Bulletproof people, you know, what's the number one reason for divorce? It's number one is money. Second is infidelity that, that that exists for whatever reasons they are. Take that problem away. Secure people's futures. Allow them just to focus on going to work because work's great and I love it. Rather than, oh, boy, I, don't, I don't want to get on the wrong That's side of my boss. such a month. nice dream.
0: Such a nice dream, though. I mean, in reality, I think I've attended to this the opposite way. So I basically was saying... Look, sometimes it becomes really difficult to convince every leader to create an environment where where you can be happy at work. So I wanted to teach people that it's an indi- an individual thing. Regardless of what work is offering you, you can still create connections yourself. You can still trust people. You can still have a good time. You can still have that coffee conversation. Hopefully, the two sides of it, the individual taking care of their own happiness and and calm and the company building that environment is uh is the best of both worlds
2: we know we hear this term you know some people are loners Mm. i don't think i don't think people are loners i think the people that are in the loner category are alone oh that's true i don't think they're loners as in i like to be alone i think they've conditioned themselves to be alone they've used some form of propaganda that's fed them to enable them to put themselves in a box you Mm. know i'm an introvert so i I like to be on my own so i'm going to give that that box to myself but i don't think it is because there's nothing nicer when you go to work than someone coming up to you and saying you know what I really, really appreciate what you've done. You've made a big difference to my day. This project that you've pulled through has just made I'm so happy. You've got no idea.
1: Said
0: by an extrovert, everyone.
2: So <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, there are those memes on social media about introverts and extroverts. Of course, yeah, only yeah. <laughs> only introverts would subscribe or follow someone who's doing those memes about introverts. And the whole idea is that while you're saying that to the introvert, he's like, when is he gonna finish and leave? Yeah. <laughs> that. Spence, you know what? I will ha- I never thought I would say this to anyone. I'm really, really delighted that you're getting older. Yeah. I really am. I mean, every everything that you that you stand for is
0: so inspiring. It's really... And, and I think you wouldn't have been that person unless you actually succeeded the way you succeeded. Because if you hadn't, you would still be chasing success because somehow people never believe me when I tell them cars are never going to make you happy, you know, or wealth is never going to make you happy. It's just... And everyone says, "Okay, I'm going to have to try for myself." So here is an example of someone who tried for himself, like me, and still goes back to say it's all about making that difference to one person. Well, I have to bring you back. Uh, I'm sorry, but you did so <laughs> well today that we're. Going- <laughs> I actually really like the idea of talking about money and how people can uh, can understand their. Uh, their top uh, mistakes, if you want. Maybe,
2: maybe, maybe I'll do you. know you. what? Yeah. It's a, such a fascinating subject and something, something I'm really passionate about. It's that when you haven't got money, it's a horrible world to live in. Yeah. Because you're always worried about it. Yeah, true. And you just live in fear and people don't need to. Yeah. there are really, literally, they just don't need to. And, um, yeah. Okay, so... He's
0: coming back. <laughs> I thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. It's
2: been an absolute privilege. It was
0: a wonderful conversation. Thank you all for joining us. I mean, in a, in a very interesting way, I would say this conversation was truly worth the two years of wait. And uh, yeah, I think for, for you to take a minute now and perhaps go back and listen to parts of it because it's not only about success in life, it's also about understanding what others are going through Who may have never been given the chance for success i think i think the bottom line of our conversation today has been be kind to one person make a difference to one and if you can make a difference to a million go for it but at least be kind to one person because in reality compared to the challenges that we're going through some people have really not seen what it is like to be in a tough place so uh, with that, I'll ask you to slow down a bit this week and consider how blessed you are despite the challenges that you're going through. I hope that your life will always be easy and that you'll never get uh, some of those big tests. But I think what Spencer has suggested of connecting to those who have seen those tests, giving two hours of your months or giving a bit of your attention to really reflect on how tough life can be and how blessed we all are may make a massive difference doesn't matter how busy you are this month i will expect you to dedicate those uh, two hours doesn't matter how busy you are i'll expect you to find a little bit of time to slow down and as always i'm really really grateful for you giving me the chance to meet some of the most amazing people to have the most amazing conversations even as friends we don't go as deep unless the cameras are pointed at us. So for that, I'm very, very grateful. Uh, Do take the time to do what people do in this modern, messy world of telling others about the podcast, share it on your social media or rate it five stars on your podcast player. It will help us get more people to listen to
2: those awesome conversations. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.